Now, uh, I'm a big fan of the fifth Harry Potter book, The Order of the Phoenix, which I gather that some of the diehard fans don't think is very good, but I like it. Because one of the reasons, well, one of the reasons that I like it is because there is a fascinating plot development uh, in the relationship between Harry and Professor Dumbledore. Up until this point, Dumbledore has always been there to provide Harry with vital support whenever he needs it through the previous books. But in book five, suddenly he seems to go very distant. And Harry gets more and more angry with Dumbledore as the story goes on. Now, Hermione, Harry's more astute friend, uh, assumes that there's probably a very good explanation for all of this because Dumbledore has been consistently on Harry's side up until this point. And therefore, it's very likely that there's a good reason that they just don't know about. The great headmaster isn't obliged to reveal everything to a teenage boy, after all. But Harry finds all of this very difficult to hear. He can't possibly fathom why Dumbledore isn't confiding in him. For him, it's very simple. Either the headmaster needs to wade in and help him out, or he isn't the headmaster that he thought he was. It has to be one or the other. And of course, as you read on through the book, you realize that, sure enough, there was a much deeper issue at stake that Harry just had no idea about. Well, if you haven't been with us for the last couple of weeks, we're in the middle of the book of Job. And Job feels towards God a little bit like Harry feels towards his headmaster at this point in the book. He's been hit with terrible suffering and suffering that doesn't seem to make any sense. It's a book that invites us to ask the question, what is God up to in our world? The book of Job is a very foundational book of the Bible because sooner or later as Christians, we need to engage with that question. You can only go on so long before you start thinking, what on earth is God up to? And so often it's when suffering hits that that question is thrown in our faces. Just two days ago, I was sent an update from a friend of mine who's trying to plant uh, a church in another part of the world where they desperately need some gospel work. And he told us that it's been um, a very tough time because one of the key men involved was recently tragically killed in an accident, leaving behind his wife and two children. It's a terrible tragedy to happen to any family. But why one of the key men involved in setting up the church? Doesn't God, isn't God working against himself there? What's going on? Now, the purpose of this book isn't to try and figure out why Job is suffering as we read through it. The way it's written is that you find that out in the opening chapters. We actually know why Job is suffering right from the start. But Job doesn't. And we're invited to join him in his struggle as he tries to work out what on earth is going on. So that we know what steps to take when we're in his shoes in our lives. When we're asking the question, what is God up to? This book is here to teach us what to think next at that point, especially when it is acute suffering that has driven us to that question. Now, we're building towards an answer as we go through the book, but we're still not quite there yet. We need another week to feel the depth of the problem as we tag along with Job through this book. It's next week that we'll get to the real answer 
um, if you like. And if you haven't managed to be with us the last couple of weeks, I really would recommend going back and having um, a listen to the previous talks as well. Not because I particularly want to get my views up on uh, YouTube or anything like that. Um, although, of course, I do. You know, if you go there, do reload the page a couple of times so it goes up a little bit. Um, but rather because this is a book that really works as a whole. You have to work through the whole thing as you get towards the end. Now, last week, we were introduced to Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Um, They thought that they could provide the answers for Job, but they couldn't. They started in the right place by affirming that God is always more just and righteous than any man ever could be. We can never conclude that God has got something wrong. It's just not possible because of who he is. But then they ended up going in the wrong direction by assuming that Job must have sinned and God was punishing him for what was going wrong in his life, which we know from chapter 1 isn't true. But this week, Job is back in the spotlight in chapters 27 to 31, which is his final speech at the end of this discussion he's had with his friends. And really, it's a speech which is aimed at God rather than at the friends themselves, because it captures all of Job's frustration and pain that after rounds and rounds of reasoning with his friends, he still doesn't know what to think. He knows he's innocent in all of this. He knows that the friends must be wrong, but he can't figure out the answers either. And like Harry, he feels like he's in the dark and the headmaster has concealed himself. And in the middle of this great speech comes chapter 28, which is our focus for this week and the passage that we had read and sang to us so wonderfully by the choir as well. And the purpose of this speech is to illustrate to us that we really can't figure out the answers when it comes to the deep mysteries of how God runs the universe. This is supposed to be the great moment of humbling in the book, where we discover what our limitations really are. Now, there are three observations that Job makes as he uh, takes us through this speech, and we're going to go through them one by one. And the first uh, is that, in general, mankind can discover almost anything. We're very good at discovering stuff. We're very resourceful. And he makes this observation with an illustration about mining. Have a look back down to verse 1 again. Job writes, there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the black darkest, uh, within the blackest darkness. Even back in Job's day, back in the Iron Age or perhaps even earlier, humanity was able to achieve incredible feats of mining. Uh, We had discovered a way to dig into the rock of a hillside and pull out metal ore, which when you think about it is a remarkable achievement to figure out that you can tunnel into the ground, extract something that looks like a rock, smelt it, and then take from that silver and gold and copper and iron. Many generations refined this ability, and we discovered how to do it long ago in ages past, long before modern technology. This, of course, is something that's far beyond anything that any animal could do in creation. Verse 7, no bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. But humanity can find a way even to the most inaccessible parts of the earth to find treasure hidden from the rest of the world. Verse 9, people assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock. Their eyes see all its treasures. 
Now, why does Job begin with an observation about mining? Well, because it illustrates mankind's ability to discover things. Here is a mountain. It's the most immovable thing that there is on this planet. But humanity can churn it up from its roots. We can delve into the darkness of the caves and come out with treasure. Mining is a great illustration of how resourceful humans are. When we put our minds to it, we can find anything that we want. And of course, Job's observation has only become more true over time. We have explored not just under the mountains, but every corner of the globe, from the highest peaks to the deepest trenches of the ocean. Here's a picture for you. I wonder if you know uh, what this is. Um, It's a Google Earth shot of Bouvet Island, which is the most remote island in the world, a tiny outcrop in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean. I recently learned about this by playing the online game uh, Wordle. I don't know if you all remember playing uh, Wordle, probably about this time last year. None of you were paying attention to any sermon you were listening to because you were all avidly playing Wordle on your phone. And maybe some of you are thinking, oh yeah, that was quite fun, and are reaching for your phone in your pocket. Stop right now and carry on paying attention because we know who you are. Well, I'm still playing Wordle with a friend of mine, which is a little bit like Wordle, but for geography. You sort of get a silhouette of a country, and you have six guesses to kind of narrow it down. It's a lot of fun. Um, but I came across this one recently where um, I, had, I had narrowed it down to being sort of somewhere in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean, um, and I was on my final guess. And so I thought I'd cheat and look on Google Maps, because, you know, I was on a winning streak against my friend. And I, didn't wanna, yeah, I didn't want to lose it. Come on. Um, so I looked on Google Maps... And there wasn't anything there. It was only after several minutes of zooming in and out that I found this tiny little dot in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean, which I later learned from Wikipedia is the most remote place in the world, the most remote island. So remote that you can hardly find it on Google Maps, let alone in real life. But humans have discovered it. This tiny island miles away from anywhere with nothing but ice and penguins on it. It has its own Wikipedia page. No stone has been left unturned at this point in our world. We've searched everywhere and discovered everything. All the treasures of the world have been found. And not just across the surface of the world, we've probed deep down into the trenches of the ocean as well and discovered whole new ecosystems there. We've searched right into the heavens above also. If you haven't done so recently, go and have a look at the website for the James Webb Space Telescope, which was launched a couple of years ago, and you can find some stunning images of our galaxies, images that tell us information about the very formation of the universe, in fact. We have searched every corner of our world. We've searched the heavens above. We've even searched back in time, in a manner of speaking, to see how galaxies have come into existence. Mankind is very, very resourceful. When we want to discover things, we're extremely good at it. But here's the problem, observation two, that Job makes. We can't do the same for wisdom. True wisdom is beyond us. Verse 12, but where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. We can dig into the literal darkness of the earth and come out with literal gemstones. That's a difficult thing to do, but mankind can master it. But digging into the metaphorical darkness of our world, the realm of wisdom, 
I'm coming out with metaphorical gems. Well, that's a lot harder to do. Where do you start mining if you want to dig up wisdom? Now, I don't think Job means that it's impossible to go through life and make wise decisions, like we're all sort of bumbling idiots who don't know, have a clue what we're doing. Um, nor that God doesn't give us wisdom for life decisions when we pray to him. I don't think that's what he means. What he means is that the wisdom of the sort that is about the deep mysteries of how God runs the universe, the deep unanswered questions. That's the kind of wisdom Job's talking about. Many of the deep questions transcend cultures and remain elusive, don't they? Why am I here? What's the purpose of my life? What's the right way to live my life? And especially when suffering hits, how am I supposed to make sense of all of this? The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not in me. We can send a telescope into space, but we can't find the answers to those questions. We can travel every inch of the globe on Google Maps, pretty much. But not once will you get to a screen where it shows you what true wisdom really is. No philosopher or scientist or politician can help us out. In a lecture in 2005 about cosmology, the late Stephen Hawking declared that we are getting close to answering all of the age-old questions. Why are we here? Where did we come from? He said. Close, but not close enough. Because in reality, cosmology simply can't answer those sorts of questions. It can help you to mine the universe for all sorts of answers to questions about star formations, but it can't really answer the question, why am I here? And not only is wisdom impossible to find, but it also can't be bought, as Job points out in verse 15. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought in the, with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or lapis lazuli. I don't know if you keep track of who the richest person is in the world. Apparently it's now uh, Bernard Arnault. Uh, I'm probably not doing the French pronunciation very well there, but he overtook Elon Musk last year with a net worth of uh, $213.4 billion, which is an eye-watering amount. Just imagine for a moment what you would buy if you had that kind of money. Well, unfortunately, not a penny of it can be used to buy true wisdom. And that's a pity, because we would pay up if we had the chance. Verse 18, coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. Wisdom is very, very valuable. Imagine there existed a crystal ball that actually worked and it was able to give you the answer to any kind of question that you were asking. How much would you pay to use it? We'd pay a lot. But unfortunately, wisdom is beyond the price of rubies. And there's a dry note of irony in what Job is saying here, because, of course, he just pointed out that humans can mine the earth and bring out all the precious gemstones, but we can't trade them in for wisdom. And so Job's conclusion in verses 20 to 22 still seem to be true centuries and centuries later. He says, where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the sky. Destruction and death say... Only a rumor of it has reached our ears. It is simply beyond mankind to find true wisdom, no matter how hard we try. There's only one person who can find wisdom, and that is God himself. 
Job's third observation. Only God can find true wisdom. Verse 23. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. The Lord God made the universe and everything that is in it. So, of course, he does have all of the answers. God knows what true wisdom is because he was the source of it in the first place. He established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, verse 25. And he also knows all the answers to the difficult questions of life as well. He knows why you're suffering. He knows who a good person to marry would be. He knows how you ought to raise your children. He knows what the purpose of your life is. All these questions that we can't fathom. God uniquely knows all these things because he's the source of it all. Verse 27, he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. God has found wisdom. When he created the heavens and the earth back in Genesis 1, he came across wisdom. And he got it out and he prodded it a bit and weighed it and looked at it through a magnifying glass. And he knows what it is. I spent part of my gap year after I finished school working on several oil paintings. I don't know if you've ever done any oil paintings before or seen someone working on one. Um, But you have to sort of build things up in layers, which means that there's a whole kind of story and narrative about how it comes together. There's all sorts of things hidden beneath the surface that the casual observer doesn't see. But the artist knows all about it. I know all about the paintings that I did. I have perfect wisdom about them. I know exactly which colors I started with, where I had to rework it when it went wrong, where it was frustrating and I had to work on the detail. All of that, I have perfect wisdom. And so it is with God and the universe. It all came from him, and therefore, of course, he knows everything about it. Of course, he has perfect wisdom. And so, therefore, if we want true wisdom, our only choice is to accept what he has revealed to us. And what is the great revelation? What is it that he's told us? Verse 28. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil, that is understanding. Well, there you go. You can keep hold of your cash because there's the answer. It's all been sorted out. In fact, we can probably go home early next week. We can sack off the sermon and just put on a movie instead or something like that. Except that it hasn't really been sorted out, has it? Or at least it certainly doesn't feel like it has. Job certainly isn't saying this as if he's come to this great epiphany at the end of chapter 28. And now everything finally clicks and makes sense. You know that because if you carry on reading into chapters 29 to 31, the rest of the speech, you'll see that he doesn't change his tone. In fact, his plea to find out what's going on only gets more and more intense, ending finally with a petition to God in chapter 31, where he says, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Hang on, Job. Hasn't God just given you the answer? The fear of the Lord is wisdom. You said it yourself. But the whole point from the beginning of Job is that he already was a wise man. He already was fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. Cast your mind back to the beginning of the book. How did it start? In the land of Uz, there was a man, uh, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. 
God is the only one who can find wisdom. He has revealed to man that wisdom is to fear him and turn away from evil. That's what Job was doing in chapter 1. And still he suffered. And this is the point. There is a piece of true wisdom that God has revealed in the world. A fundamental, timeless, enduring piece of knowledge that will always be true and right. It would always get to the heart of what it means to live within our universe. It transcends cultures and even religions. You don't actually need to be a Christian to grasp this basic basic piece of wisdom. That is to fear God and to turn away from evil. That is the starting point of what it means to be wise. But that still doesn't explain everything to us. It's true, it's foundational, but it won't explain all of the mysteries of life. For Job, it still doesn't explain why he has suffered and what God is up to. Job knows that fearing God is wisdom. A bit like Harry with Professor Dumbledore. He knows that the right thing to do is to respect and trust the great headmaster and to carry out what he's been asked to do. But he's still in the dark. Well, let's draw all of this together then. What do we take away from all of this? In many ways, this chapter gets right to the heart of what's going on in this book. As we said throughout the series, uh, Job is a book which is primarily about God. It's a book that invites us to ask the question, what is God up to when he seems to do inexplicable things in the world? Particularly when suffering comes along without explanation. And by chapter 28, Job has gone round in circles with his friends, these great philosophers of the East. And all they've managed to end up is with is where they started. They haven't got any further than knowing that the fear of the Lord is wisdom. And so this chapter is getting us to the heart of the issue. We live in a world of unanswered questions. Whether you like it or not, that's the deal. There is no religion or philosophy or internet guru or scientist or Instagrammer who can tie everything down neatly and give it to you in a package. Even as Christians, we need to remember this. Of course it's true that God has revealed much to us. The author of Job knew this. He presumably knew everything that God had been doing in history for his people Israel in the Old Testament. And certainly we have much more in the Lord Jesus. We have everything we need for life and salvation. But that doesn't mean that all the mysteries of the world are all tied up neatly for us and given us in a little pamphlet when we become a Christian. Man can search the globe and even the depths of space, but we cannot find true wisdom. Only God can find it. And God has revealed that to fear him is wisdom and to turn away from evil is understanding. But that doesn't provide answers to all of those questions. And so this chapter is supposed to be very humbling. It's a chapter that puts us in our place because we all want to know the answers to everything. Especially when, like Job, we're going through acute suffering. How could this happen, Lord? And the point of 28 chapters of Job is to get us to the point where we acknowledge that we simply can't find out the answers to those questions. Only God has wisdom. And all that he has revealed to us is this, to fear him and to turn away from evil. That is wisdom as the choir sang so wonderfully for us earlier i loved that anthem because it really felt like we were having this drilled into us didn't it does it feel like that's not good enough that god needs to do better than that 
We'll come back next week when God finally does step on the scene in the book and we'll see what he has to say. But to finish with, as in the previous weeks, I do actually want to end on a note of hope because underneath all of this wrestling, there is an assumed understanding that the God operating behind the whole show, doing all of this, is a good God. He is a God of justice, a God of righteousness, remember. This is key to what the book of Job is telling us. And we see this coming through in the book in occasional fleeting moments like rays of light poking through a stormy sky. You know, sometimes when you see those shafts of light coming down. One of those lines comes in chapter 19, which we sort of skipped by, um, but has been made famous by Handel's Messiah, where Job says this, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. That's chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. There is a bigger picture. The book of Job is written to help us through the world as it presently is, with so many unanswered questions. But throughout the Bible, it is always assumed that that is not the way that things are always going to be. History is not just one endless muddle of not really knowing what's going on. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on the earth, Job says. There is a great judgment, a great revelation at the end of all of this. There's a great future that God is working towards, where all the apparent wrongs and injustices of the present time are all sorted out. And this is what we hold fast to as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? God might not have revealed everything to us that we might want to know. We may have to go through terrible hardships that seem to have no apparent purpose to us. Some of us are in the thick of it right now. And we, 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 we have to know that we, we want to know what the purpose of it all is and whether it will continue, whether it will stop or whatever, and we just don't. And as we follow the Lord Jesus, God makes us no promises that life won't be like that as we go along. It very well might do. The lesson of the book of Job hasn't changed. But we know that our Redeemer lives. God has raised Christ from the dead and seated him on high. There is a great future to come. And so as we struggle through suffering and we don't seem to have the answers, we look to the cross And we look to the resurrection of Christ and we can say, I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Why don't we pray to finish? Father, we know that mankind can can achieve many, many great things, but when it comes to wisdom, uh, we only have what you have given us. And we pray, Father, that you would humble us Um, Help us to accept our limitations, even if um, it's frustrating to have to do that. We pray, especially for all who are suffering here this morning, we pray, Father, give us patience as we wrestle through these questions. Most of all, Father, we thank you that you are a great God of justice who gives us all that we need in the Lord Jesus Christ to make it that great future even if we don't have all of the answers along the way. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.